Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And I'm very excited today to begin a new series. Uh, it'll be a very, very short one, but we're going to be looking at another woman writer from the 20th century, an American woman, obviously. Uh, in this case, in this, in this series, we'll be looking at Jane Bowles. Uh, this will be a fairly short series. In fact, uh, the Library of America published one volume of her collected writings, and of that, only about 400 pages is actually fiction. And a lot of that wasn't even published. Uh, you know, a lot of that are like sketches and things. Much of the volume is just made up of her letters to mostly Paul Bowles, but to a few other people. And actually, the bumper I use for this series is from some of Paul Bowles's, um, one of his compositions. Uh, as you probably know, uh, Paul Bowles was an American writer who's maybe most famous as a composer and as an expat living in North Africa for much of his life. And uh, he was uh, Jane Bowles's husband. So he's going to be part of the story that I'm going to try to tell over the next maybe five episodes or so. I don't know if I'm going to go into her letters too much. I still haven't yet decided on whether I'm going to do that. Probably I won't. But I'm going to try to get through as much of her fiction as I feel I can comment on. Uh, she is a very, very different writer. She kind of baffled a lot of critics at the time, but other people saw her as a genius. People like Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote really, really respected her. Uh, of course, Paul Bowles did as well. Um, so, But she is, she is a bit tough. Um, in fact, this is the second time I picked up her one novel, the one novel she wrote. She wrote it when she was in her 20s. Uh, she wrote it, I think she started writing it when she was like 21 or 22, and, and it was published, I think, when she was 26 or 27. So this is the only novel she wrote. She also published a play and some short stories. And some of those short stories, at least one of them, and at least one other fragment in this collection, are things that she wrote for this novel called Two Serious Ladies. And I will talk about Two Serious Ladies in this episode and the next one. It's not a very, very long novel. In fact, uh, it was longer at one point. Paul Bowles read it, and it was at that point I called Three Serious Ladies, and Paul Bowles uh, requested or recommended she take out one of them, and that, that story is somewhere else. It's called Guatemalan Idol, and I'll look at that in the, in the future. So, yeah, she didn't really publish that much, but she is really brilliant, I think, and there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. In fact, it's hard not to think of uh, music when you read this. It's you know, I don't want to see here too much through the lens of Paul Bowles, but at the same time, you know, she met him when he was very young. They remained friends throughout lives. They remained married, of, of course, even though their sexual relationship was um, very, uh, well, I'll get into their, their sex life a little bit in the future, but there wasn't that much of it. Uh, mostly they both had their sex life outside of their marriage. And maybe being expats helped them do that. Um, but he did have a huge impact on her life. And the reason I mention him is, is this novel, Two Serious Ladies, almost feels like a, like it's music almost. Like it's something you experience the way you experience uh, like a symphony or, or a sonata or something. It's, it's hard to like grasp any 
anything specific, like a story. It's just more about the experience and the flow and how themes inter interweave. And I understand why critics at the time responded quite negatively to it for the most part, just because it was so unlike uh, any other novel. And it's not just its thematics that were striking for the time. I mean, this novel openly deals with homosexuality. It, it, it's, it's countercultural in a lot of, a lot of ways, but it's, the characters are very um, odd and do things that seem counterintuitive. And again, there's not really a story so much. It's like different vignettes that are, that are put together. Um, the two main threads in the novel don't even really intersect except the beginning and the, and the end. So it, it does kind of feel like you're, it kind of feels like how you listen to a sonata where you hear a theme and that theme will come back and it's more about the experience and it's more about maybe the, the, you know, the overall feeling you get from it than, than individual, an individual story or, or certainly not any point. I don't think Jane Bulls is, is trying to make a very specific argument here like many other writers we looked at in this series and i think that makes it, it's very much a modernist novel let's let's say it that way it's it's um really challenging conventions in very very interesting ways so i like this novel it's the actually the second time i've read it i, I originally got this volume over the summer summer of 2019 and i read it and i didn't and i was like those critics i didn't quite know what to make of it um, I read the like the summary Library of America gives you about the books. And I'm like, well, that sounds really interesting and, and something I'd be into. And then when I read it, I, you know, I, I, kinda, I understood what was going on, but it was like what to make of it. I really struggled with it. So actually I had to do a little bit of research and digging into it because I don't know that much about Paul Bowles. I certainly didn't know that much about Jane Bowles either. But I, you know, I, I came back to it. I, you know, I read some other women writers first. I went back to do... Um, Look at, uh, you know, Willa Cather and the science fictions and then I did the whole series on Mary McCarthy. And then I came back to her and yeah, I really, I really think there's a lot to talk about here and a lot to, to digest. But I, all I can say is I really recommend you pick this up. I don't know if I would necessarily recommend reading all of her stuff systematically, but certainly Two Serious Ladies is something you should pick up at some point in your life just because it, it is so different and, and so striking and so weird and interesting. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of fun. So um, go at it. So I'll, I'll do my best here. I'm not, I mean, this is the kind of novel I think people who maybe get their, do their PhD in literature would have a lot of fun with maybe, or people who are, you know, really looking academically or philosophically at 20th century writers, they can have a lot of mileage from this, but that's not how I read these things. I'm, I'm a historian. I, I tend to read things more in there, more as a historicist and, and that makes it, I'm not sure how far I can go with this stuff. So I apologize in advance, but, you know, I'm just trying to give you my thoughts about this, these works as, as I read them. So I hope you appreciate that. Um, anyways, um, now this novel is dedicated to three people. It's dedicated to, to Paul, Mother, and, and Hel Helvita. So who are these people? Well, of course, who are her mother's mother? Paul's Paul. Um, but if we look at her, her life up to the publication of of two serious ladies, um, we can kind of see how these different people affected her. Um, her father died when she was quite young. Her father died when she was uh, 13 years old or so. She was born in 1917 in New York City. Uh, her father, is, her heritage from her father's side was German Jewish, but her father died in 1930 and she then she, she lived with her mother and her mother uh, was a, a 
you know, commented on her writing. She didn't think much of Two Serious Ladies, in fact, but, um, you know, she was part of her life. And there, I think there's letters to her in this, in this collection. Um, in 1932, she follows her mother to move to Switzerland, and that's where she starts to do some more studies. And she, she started reading more philosophy and, and was kind of, you know, a little bit more exposed to contemporary philosophical thought and modern, modernist thought while there. Um, it's in 1934 that she decides she wants to become a writer, and she actually does write a novel at that point. I, I don't believe it was published, at least not in her lifetime. It's not in this collection, of course. It, it's a French novel. But it, it was written in French. She wrote her first novel in French, which is pretty, pretty amazing and pretty interesting. Um, and I don't know much about what is in that novel, but she she wrote that. It's in 1937, so it's a few years later that while she's studying music, that she meets Paul Bowles. And again, Paul Bowles, you know, I think he's most known as a composer. But you know, Library of America, I think, published two volumes of his books. Um, so, and I haven't read any of that stuff. I, I hope to someday. I probably will someday, but you know, he, I'm not sure. It maybe depending on who you talk to, he'll be remembered more one way or another. But I, it seems she, she kind of got introduced to him through kind of um, musical circles. And it didn't take long for them to get married. So she married him in 1938. So she's still quite young. She's, she's 21 when she married Paul Bowles. And pretty much instantly, they start to live as a bisexual. It seems even before they got married, they agreed on an open marriage. And, and so Jane Bowles was was bisexual, and she slept mostly with women. The, I think, as far as I can tell, maybe like she had some affairs, maybe, but pretty much Paul Bowles was her main uh, male lover in her life. Paul Bowles uh, was also had many different lovers, both men and women, but it seems he was mostly with men. So um, it, it was an open marriage, and and there was you know the. People who have studied the sexual revolution, you know, kind of dig into this. And it was, you know, more awareness and openness and, and open discussion about open marriages. Of course, part of the sexual revolution as an ongoing thing. Some people find it works very well for them and, and live that life. But I think it's pretty key, especially for understanding this novel and understanding her whole life was that she she lived as a lesbian for, for much of her life, although being married. Um, she begins writing two serious ladies, what at the time was conceived of as three serious ladies, in 1938, so not long after she married, when she was still quite young. Uh, she lived with Paul, but again, she's already very early in her married life having um, sex with women and meeting women, and that's going to continue throughout her, her life. Um, Paul is sometimes abusive to her. That's one thing when I was reading this bi little biography, this chronology that Library of America includes in their volumes. That's where I get a lot of this from. You know, he was quite abusive to her at times, hitting her. And then after one of these encounters, that's when she cut off sexual relations with, with Paul. And that happened in 1840. So in 1840, she, she stopped having sex with Paul Bowles. And they remain married. They remain friends. Like I said, most of her letters in this collection are to him. Certainly, he had a very, very big impact. And much of Paul Bowles' life was focused on Jane Bowles, who, was, who really started falling ill in the 1950s. And for the last 20 years of her life, she was... You know, she had a lot of health problems that that was that was a big part of Paul's life. So they remain very, very close. It's it's actually a it's a very loving relationship despite um, their their lack of, I guess, sexual uh, connection. And in spite of the violence, in spite of um, 
all this, but it, it worked for them. And I, I just think that's an interesting thing. And if I'm sure there's people who've written whole biographies of Jane Bowles and Paul Bowles and can say a lot more about that and, and how that affected them. But just my impression here is it, it seems it seems to have worked out quite well for them. Um, at some point, I think it's in 1940, they moved to Mexico or they spend some time in Mexico. And that's where she meets Helavita. Helavita is her main uh, female love interest in this part of her life. And that's why she dedicates part of this novel, this novel to her. So those are the three people, the three most important people in her life, I suppose. Her mother, Paul, and, and Helvita. Now it's interesting that only Helvita and, or Helvita and her mother both hated two serious ladies. Helvita in part because it was too conspicuously lesbian uh, in, its, in its themes. Um, but Paul really liked it. And also some big names like this. Tennessee Williams, for instance, really thinks thought she was brilliant. It's kind of what I, what kind of is most surprising to me is she wrote so little, and she had so, apparently such difficulty in in getting her words on paper. She's you know maybe she wrote what she had in her. You know, I know no one's obliged to write anything more than what they want to write, but you know, I wonder if there was a possibility for more of a literary career, but she didn't pursue it for whatever reason. She had other interests and, and she, she lived her life mostly, which, just, you know, strikes me after scanning through this chronology piece of a very, very um, eventful life. Um, not apparently very happy, though, because in 1942, it's a, well, she, it seems she attempted suicide, or at least she slit her wrist. I mean, sometimes people do that not so seriously. Um, not a serious suicide attempt, but she, she did it. Um, now, 1943, Two Serious Ladies is finally published. Now, again, it was published after Paul Bowles suggested he takes out like one third of the story. So originally it was going to be three women and their different experiences. Now, instead we just get two. So it's a more of a, a pairing. And, and it works. I, I don't know what it, I guess you can kind of have an idea what it would look like. I guess it wouldn't be that different, but it, there's some nice, some nice balance to it as the way it is presented here. So the story, Two Serious Ladies, um, essentially is about two women who, who break free of convention. And that sounds so cliche, but, and, and of course, we looked at Mary McCarthy. Her novels, you know, she's writing about the same period of time, at least her early novels, but she comes at it in such a different way. I think Mary McCarthy is much more political much more conscious. I, Jean Bowles had like very, very little interest in, in politics. Paul Bowles joined the Communist Party kind of as, a, as for the laughs. Um, and Jane Bowles joined too. But apparently she didn't read or she tried to read some communist literature and got bored by it and was interested in it. So she's not a very political writer. So she comes at it more for, about from, the, from experiences. And she sees experiences as, as, as something that can challenge convention and deliberate women. So in a way, this novel really is about freedom. And how do you get that? And there's, in all these women's lives, there's characters who kind of present themselves as like, they're like establishment dominant figures who would be in a conventional novel like the, the mainstream force, the, the antagonist in a way that the person seeking freedom would be fighting against. Um, in this novel, though, it, these figures just kind of move to the backdrop and they don't really play much of a role. I think that's so there's not there's not the real it's not like it's not even political in the sense like these women are struggling against society. They're just doing things and they're doing things that make them freer. And so that I think is it's, it's really an interesting um, for me approach to this because I've read people like Mary McCarthy who are much more overt about 
that these women are are doing something that's that's politically important or socially significant or revolutionary. That's not the case here. The these women just do things because it makes them happy because it's it's where their life kind of drives them, and it's it's everything comes off much more organically there. Now the novel itself is is really bizarre though, and it's. I, I can see why I can challenge a lot of, of readers, or a lot of readers will not quite know what to make of it, because it doesn't really follow those, you know, the kind of the expected plot points and tensions and, and confrontations that that you'd get. Like a big subtext of one of the women basically lives as a lesbian. You know, she leaves her best. Well, she doesn't totally leave him. She stays married to him, but she starts living as a lesbian right under her husband's nose. And her husband doesn't care. There's no, it's no, there's no drama about it. That's not where the drama in the novel is. It's so, yeah. I. Well, anyways, here's how one reviewer. This is Alan Tinkler, and his review was published. I don't know, ten years ago or so. This is a review of like all her fiction, basically. It's like an introduction to Jane Bowles, uh, in the review of contemporary fiction, and he says, uh, in fact, okay, so he talks about Dill using Guattari which who's a couple writers, thinkers that I haven't quite fully mastered. Um, but they provide an interesting conceptual framework for considering her ouvre because Jane Bowles confronts conventions. In fact, Bowles creates new forms so that she does not languish in creative repetition. Once Bowles solves a puzzle, she refuses to recycle solutions. With each new project, with each new solution, she creates an original solution. And we're reminded of this, or this is pretty apparent early in the novel, when she only she introduces one of the main characters in just a few pages, and then jumps to the character's adulthood, and we're, we're like running before we really know who these characters are fully. Uh, all right, without any more of me babbling about this, let's try to jump into this novel a little bit. Now, the first of the two serious ladies we meet is Christina Goering, Goering, G-O-E-R-I-N-G. Um, so I think she's she's really referred to as Mrs. Goring. The other serious lady is a woman named Mrs. Copperfield. Um, now, but we first are interested to Goring. She's um, from a rich family, but she's a very awkward and actually kind of a fanatic child with really strange ideas. Again, right away, right from the very first page, we're told this child is not conventional. This, this woman will not live a conventional life. Um, for instance, one thing she does with her friends, and she's got her, like her sister Sophie and a Mary, a friend who hangs out with them, and they she plays like moral games and religious games with them, right? At one point, she plays this dancing game with the friend Mary, which devolves into kind of a sun worshiping dance. Um, at another point, there's like a, a fight between these kids, and and she offers forgiveness. To Sophie after pushing her leading to some like weird baptism ritual and this all happens in the first few pages of the novel and it's again it's, it's a really bizarre introduction to these these characters and it's hard to, not to know what make of it this is why I struggled with this book this last summer and, and I guess I'm still don't feel I have it a hundred percent and I don't know if that's the point right it is there's kind of a liquidity to the novel or a, it's kind of like again it's like music it's like describing a symphony and it's you can maybe do that technically, but that's not as interesting as trying to get it thematically. But that's very hard to do when people are going to have subjective readings of all that. So you turn the next page and she's all grown up and she, she kind of transformed from a, a weird um, 
kind of chubby girl to a sexy, beautiful, weird woman, <laughs> uh, a spinster, uh, a rich spinster, right? And she's kind of the same. She's kind of presented as having some of these same characteristics that, that are made possible in part because she lives sort of by her own. Now, this woman shows up named Lucy Gamlin, and she's like the governess, like um, Gehring's governess's cousin who heard about her, and she just shows up at her house. And basically, Gehring invites her in to basically be her companion, and they start living together. Now, this isn't a lesbian relationship so much. It, it's kind of homosocial, but it, instead of getting married, uh, Gary just kind of takes in this woman who's almost like a boarder, but I don't think she pays rent or anything. She's just sort of living with her. And, you know, they just discuss the house. They discuss how they met. They have the conversations about things like guardian angels and things. And then she just decides, apparently on a whim, to let her live there. So already she's she's so... Uh, non-conventional in her life in the way she kind of plays with religious extremism and religious ideas kind of as a game when people took religion very seriously she doesn't marry right now a lot of this is made easier by the fact that she is part of of the leisure class she is a, she is a very rich woman but you know and she makes very arbitrary decisions it seems or, or very sudden decisions like allowing this miss gamlin just to live with her um, so later on she gets a call from a friend Anna and Anna says there's a party and she's like oh yeah let's go to the party and again another very um, sudden rapid decision she just chooses to go and at this party she meets uh, Mrs. Copperfield Mrs. Copperfield is the second serious lady although we don't see much of her I think it's just a few lines we're introduced to this friend Copperfield so they know each other but we don't get any background about how they knew each other or what their relationship is basically they meet for a, a page in the beginning of the novel and they meet for a couple pages at the end she does still mention that she's going on this trip to panama which will dominate the second chapter of the book we're still all in the first chapter here now a man is at this party a, a man named arnold and arnold flirts with her a little bit talks with her a little bit and then just invites her over to her house and and Gurin just says okay i'll go to your house and he goes to it he goes to her this guy's house and this guy may lives with his parents and and this relationship is weird this relationship between arnold and his parents first he's like a you know he's a grown man living with his parents and he's working in real estate he's working like in the family business but doesn't seem to like it very much he's he's just he, he's kind of searching for something too although that's not jane bowles's main concern here she's more interested in these women kind of uh breaking convention um, but yeah, he lives with his parents and he's a little bit kind of lame, I think, to be honest. In fact, this is something that Arnold's father identifies right away. In fact, right in front of, well, there's a couple weird tensions here because first the mother is the much more con conventional force in this group. Arnold's father, who I don't think he's ever given a name, Arnold and, and, Christ and, and Christina Goering, you know, it's the Arnold's mother who's like the conventional force, who's kind of horrified that this woman is coming to live there. She calls her a harlot and, and has all kinds of names for her. And Arnold's father defends Christina in front of his wife. But the father also berates Arnold for basically calling him a loser in front of this woman he's brought over to, to his house. She writes, 
You'll discover soon enough, said Arnold's father, that he's a rather inferior person. He has no conception of what it is to fight. I shouldn't think women would like that very much. As a matter of fact, I don't think Arnold has had many women in his life. If you forgive me for passing this information on to you, I'm all... I myself am used to fighting. I fought my neighbors all my life instead of sitting down and having tea with them like Arnold. Now my neighbors have fought me back like tigers too. Now that's not Arnold's kind of thing. My life's ambition has always been to be a, touch, a notch higher than the tr on the tree than my neighbors. And I was always willing to complete disgrace to when I ended up perching a notch lower than anyone else I knew. I haven't been out in a good many years. Nobody comes to see me and I don't see anyone else. Now with Arnold and his friends, nothing ever begins or finishes. They're like fish in dirty water to me. If life don't please them one way and nobody likes them one place, they go someplace else. They aim to please and be pleased. That's why it's so easy to come and bop them on the head from behind because they've never done any serious hating in their life. And Mrs. Garion says, this is a really weird thing to say. And Arnold says, well, it's not a doctrine. These are just my ideas. Um, and I think there's something kind of thematic there. But again, with, these, with this novel, it's so hard to grasp onto actually what where her, her sympathies lie or what she's trying to say because Garing and Copperfield both kind of find freedom by moving around. So it's not, or they find some way of breaking free of their life by, by mobility. So I don't think this is a criticism of mobility as such as a way to freedom. It's like, it's kind of the aimlessness that he's critiquing. But uh, I'm not sure where her sympathies lie in this debate because... Um, uh, but anyways, Arnold and Arnold's father come back later in the novel. I mean, they, they don't go away, but I'll have to talk about that in the next, in the next episode. Um, so they have that weird meeting. She ends up, ends up going home after a while. She actually spends more time talking to Arnold's father than Arnold. And I don't quite know what Arnold's plan was inviting the scroll over. I don't think he knew either. I mean, it's not like... It was going to be a tryst. Um, I think Gary even says something like that. Like, I'll come to your house, but I don't have to do anything. And they don't end up really doing anything. Um, she ends up just talking to his dad. Um, now, later on, Gamlin and Gary discuss their futures. And they basically say, We're, let's, let's like, move off to, to an island off the coast, right? And, and we'll stay there. And, and maybe that will be some just something new in our life, right? Again, she's rich. She can kind of do whatever she wants. So they decide to go on an island off the coast. But Arnold starts visiting and kind of starts living with them too by this point in the story. So it's just, um, he gets just bored at his parents, so he just goes back. Now this is something Arnold's father doesn't really respect. We've already seen that. He just sort of bops around. Um, but that's that. That's the first chapter. Basically our first chapter is our introduction mostly to Christina Gehring and Arnold. And this really weird relationship she has with Gamlin, Miss Gamlin and, and Gehring. And then Jane Bull's starts chapter two, or I think it's called part two. It's just three parts in the novel. She starts part two, and then we jump to the Copperfields, and the Copperfields are taking their trip to Panama. Okay, so um, they're getting Cologne, I think. Panama, you know, Panama's not very big, so they, they visit basic different places, but I think they're in Cologne most of the time, and then they spend some time in Panama City. But that's where they are first. And the first thing we notice is just how grimy and, and kind of uh, um, the city is. It's full of like street walkers. And this is something, you know, she, she and her husband notice right away. Now, Mr. Copperfield, he picks a really crappy hotel. 
in the red light district. And the reason he justifies is he says, we're not going to spend much time in the hotel. We're just going to do it cheap. We're going to walk around. We're going to see, see the sights and all that. Um, and she's against, against this at first. She'd rather stay at a better hotel. But, you know, they, they kind of bicker about this. But they just kind of go their separate ways, and they don't really do much as a couple in this whole part of the novel. And all of part two is about Copperfields, and we, you know, she's basically gone from the story at that point. She just comes back at the end, a changed woman. Um, but like he just goes off walking, and she just kind of goes off walking, and and they get approached by by sex workers while she while they're there. Um, and like one one says like a dollar to do both of you, and and he's not that interested in it, but he does give her a dollar, and she, and Mrs. Copperfield goes off with this prostitute uh, to this to this woman's apartment, um, and it's it's kind of a really interesting window into kind of it's kind of an interesting exploration of tourism in a way tourism in this kind of of environment. Yeah, she's with this prostitute that's just identified as the Negress. That's uh, her only identification. Um, and this is what Bull writes. Uh, they walked down the street to a store and came out with a little box of face powder. The girl said goodbye and disappeared around the corner with some friends. Once again, Miss Copperfield was alone. The hacks went past filled with tourists. Tourists, generally speaking, Miss Copperfield had written in her journal, are human beings so impressed with the importance and immobility of their own manner of living that they're capable of traveling throughout the most fantastic places without experiencing anything more than visual reactions. The hardier tourists often find that one place resembles another. End quote. Um, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the tourist experience where you just go around and check out this or that. I kind of appreciate what Copperfield's doing. She's doing the opposite, right? She is definitely trying to experience this society and this life even down into the gutter and down to the lowest lowest level and she has many experiences in the short part of the novel it only goes on for you know 50 pages or so but she really gets into the nitty-gritty of this society mostly through her interactions with these various women who you know one runs a hotel uh she eventually basically shacks up with a, with a prostitute named pacifica um, for for much of this 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 time, but just interesting about how tourists observe things and don't experience things. And her husband, Mr. Copperfield, who would it be the patriarchal force? I mentioned this before. Like the, the person who would be the patriarchal counterbalance to what to this freedom, Mr. Copperfield trying to find, doesn't really care and doesn't really do anything to stop her. He just goes off on walks. So he's more the conventional tourist who just observes things. It seems, but. Um, the next person she meets is Pacifica. So this is another prostitute, but very, very beautiful. And, and they have various conversations, including a conversation about being trapped like birds in a cage. Right? And this is, of course, a common metaphor for people being trapped in their life. Those birds sing all day, the girl said the girl motioning to Mrs. Copperfield to sit down on the bed beside her. Sometimes I say to myself, little fools, what are you singing about in your cages? And then I think, Pacifica, you're just as much a fool as those birds. You're also in a cage because you don't have any money. Last night you were laughing for three hours with a German man because he had given you some drinks. And you thought he was stupid. I laugh in my cage and they sing in their cage. Oh, well, said Mrs. Copperfield. There really is no rapport between ourselves and birds. You don't think that's true, asked Pacifica with feeling. I tell you it's true. She pulled her dress over her head and stood before Mrs. Copperfield in her underslip. Tell me, she said, what do you think of those beautiful silk kimonos that the Hindu men sell in their shops? 
if I were with such a rich husband, I would tell him to buy me one of those kimonos. I, you don't know how lucky you are. I would go with him every day to the stores and make him buy me pretty things instead of standing around and crying like a little baby. Men don't like to see women cry. You think they like to see women cry? Um, and that's the kind of conversations they, they, they seem to have where they, um, they seem to be giving someone, each other, something that they're, they're missing again. But again, it's, it's hard to really grasp on what that, what that is. But you see in that conversation, they, they instantly start to, start to, to bind. Um, now, while they're in this room, this man Meyer comes to the door and he's a, you know, he's a drunk former customer of Pacifica's and he starts um, making a fuss. And Pacifica, like Copperfield, I think she wants to like call the police or something on this. And Pacifica, who deals with this every day because she is a prostitute dealing with these drunk tourist men all the time, she, uh, she says she handles it, right? And then this is when we're introduced to Mrs., uh, Mrs. Quill. Mrs. Quill owns the hotel, and she's another expat who owns this hotel, and she becomes part of Mrs. Copperfield's circle along with Pacifica, um, you know, and these other sex workers. But really, it's Pacifica, Quill, and Mrs. Copperfield that, that kind of form the, their little society here. Um, now, they mostly, Mrs. Copperfield spends her time with Pacifica, but sometimes she still does the tours thing with her husband. So one time she goes with him to Panama City, and they walk to the outskirts of town. But um, she really seems to prefer being back at the hotel with Pacifica to be back in like the gutter. She doesn't really want to have this tourist experience. And, and you know, as she talked about in her journal, how she doesn't just want to be an observer of that. So after this really short trip to Panama City, she basically you know, set, leaves her husband behind, he goes back to spend her time with Mrs. Quill and Pacifica. Uh, Mr. Copperfield wants to stay longer, but she wants to immediately go back. And they have a really interesting debate about whether they should stay in Panama City or, or go back to Cologne. So actually, they're talking to a driver here, and Mrs. Copperfield uh, yeah, says, I, she says, I adore Cologne. Obviously, we see why she does. And the, the driver says this, dirty wooden city. I'm sure you've made a big mistake. You will see. You'll like Panama City better. More stores, more hospitals, wonderful cinemas, big clean restaurants, wonderful houses in stone. Panama City is a big place. When we drive through Ancon, I'll show you how nice the lawns are with their trees and the sidewalks. You can show me anything you like that's in... You can't show me anything like that in Cologne. You know who likes Cologne? You know who likes Cologne? He winked at Mr. Copperfield. They're all over the streets. That is what is there. Nothing else. We, we have that here too, but in separate places. If you like, you can go. We have everything here. You mean like the whores? Asked Mrs. Copperfield in a clear voice. Las putas, Mr. Copperfield explained in Spanish to the driver. He was delighted at the turn of the conversation and fearful lest the driver should not get the full savor of it. The driver covered his mouth with his hand and laughed. She loves that, said Mr. Copperfield, giving his wife a push. No, no, said the driver. She could not. And, and that kind of the bafflement that the driver has over a tourist wanting to experience what is a bit embarrassing for this driver, right? He wants to show off the best of their city, right? And I think every tourist board, you know, in any, every country has that same idea, right? Like we're going to show off our nice um, tulip gardens and we're going to show off our nice mountains and, and everything's going to be crisp and clean and nice, clean hotels and 
you know, but again, almost instantly, Mrs. Copperfield was drawn to this other aspect of life, which she experienced in, in Cologne. And whatever you think of the sex work stuff, I, I think there's really something to that. I mean, to go to a city and not see all of it, you're really missing a big part of it. And you're, you're just getting that kind of superficial prepackaged consumer nonsense. And Mrs. Copperfield will have none of that. So I really appreciate that about her. Um, um, but whenever she gets back away from Panama City, gets back to Cologne, she immediately goes to see Pacific again. So they have various different adventures. Uh, I don't know, maybe not adventures is the wrong word for it. We were introduced to this guy named Toby, who's an acquaintance of Mrs. Quills, kind of like a, a boyfriend of sorts of Mrs. Quills. Um, you know, Toby is a little bit more conventional as well, kind of like Mr. Copperville's conventional in a different way. Toby's more conventional in the traditional way in that like his concern is upward mobility social mobility you know you know making money that kind of stuff um there's a really interesting side story which i don't quite know what to make of yet where mrs quill uh goes to one of the nice hotels and steals like a souvenir from that nice hotel and gets caught doing it and then mrs copperfield comes and tries to help her get out of that but this again i'm kind of reminded of the tourist experience right where you kind of grab nice things and of course they're, they're not at the nice hotel it's just, but if you need to give a, suit, a souvenir to someone, you want to give them the souvenir of the nice places of, of you know, pretend you are at those nice places. So you buy those things, right? Um, now, the climax of this part two of the, of the novel, Two Serious Ladies, is when, is, is this scene where Pacifica and Mrs. Copperfield swim, swim nude. And it's, it's, you know, it's a really well-painted portrait of these, of these two women at the at the peak of their romantic relationship um, now later they run into a, a, a melee girl named peggy gladys who's another prostitute so anyways that's that's copperfield's experience is basically you know see, seeing something new in her life now we don't know enough about mrs copperfield before we know a little bit about mr copperfield and we know he's kind of a, a square but he's not close-minded he's not abusive he's not violent you know he's open-minded enough but you can see these two characters drifting apart over the course of this part you know physically they they're separated from much of this section they just interact to maybe share notes and i think it's that trip to panama city is the only time we really see them do something together during this time um now we get this letter at the end that the, the the end of part two chapter two is a letter to Frida, Frida Copperfield, from her husband, where he essentially warns her not to be too aimless. Again, th this, I guess, is the most patriarchal he gets, is he sort of lectures her in this, in this letter. And he says, I don't mean to be cruel, but I shall write you exactly what I consider to be your faults, and I hope sincerely that what I have written will influence you. Like most people, you are not able to face more than one fear during your lifetime. You also spend your life fleeing from your first fear towards your first hope. Be careful that you do not, through your own will, wiliness, end up always in the same position in which you began. I do not advise you to spend your life surrounding yourself with those things which you term necessary to your existence, regardless of whether or not they're objectively interesting in themselves or even in your own peculiar in intellect. I sinc believe sincerely that only those men who reach the stage when it's possible for them to combat a second tragedy within themselves and not the first over are worthy of being called mature. 
When you think someone is going ahead, make sure that he's not really standing still. In order to go ahead, you must leave things behind, which most people are unwilling to do. Your first pain you carry with it, like a lodestone in your breast, because all tenderness will come from there. You must carry it with you through your whole life, but you must not circle around it. You must give up the search for those symbols which only serve to hide its face from you. You will have the illusion that they are disparate and manifold, but they are always the same. If you are only interested in a bearable life, perhaps this letter does not concern you. For God's sake, a ship leaving port is still a wonderful thing to see. Now, she's reading this letter while she's with this melee girl, Peggy Gladys, this other prostitute. And Peggy Gladys, after, reading, after hearing this letter, says something like, I never want to have a husband. And Mrs. Copperfield just goes to look for Pacifica. Um, and it seems she made her choice to to stay with that initial obsession that she's had um, and, and there seems there's a break here with her husband it seems even though it's it's rather subtle it's not a big confrontation with her husband it's just her response to this letter and her choice at the end of the section of seeking out pacifica so um that's what happened so again i i don't know if there's someone out there who's read this novel and and has more to say i find it very impressionistic i find it very fascinating i find it very enjoyable to read. I, I find it just, I'm, I was really drawn by it when I first read it. It's just what's, what I struggled with was knowing what to do with it. And I, I think maybe I still don't fully know what to make of it. Yes, obviously we have women seeking some kind of freedom for themselves away from convention, but it's not presented in that dialectic fashion that like you would see in a Mary McCarthy novel where it was really like stark choices are given. Like yeah, if you remember the group, you know, you have women like what, what was her name? Uh, one of the members of the group who has that one night stand early in the novel and she has the choice to marry the good guy, marry the conventional guy, marry the guy that's going to be right for her or to follow her heart. And she ends up marrying the, the good guy, right? She chooses the conventional approach. It's presented more dialectically. For Jane Bowles, it's not. It's presented much more impressionistically and I, I think that is really a fascinating contribution to this whole kind of feminist debate and, and you know she's still totally apolitical about it she's just talking about experiences and and yeah it's great especially I think the descriptions of Panama and the kind of the seedy underbelly of Panama I don't even know if Jane Bowles would want to use that language the language the driver uh, would use like right? the tour guide would use saying oh you don't want to go to that part of town Jane Bull doesn't even question whether it's, it's good or bad. It's just as what she is drawn towards. It's something kind of hard to describe. So anyways, I'm having a lot of fun with this. So, But I'm going to close up this episode. Um, again, it's there's, there's not like a point-by-point -point analysis we need to really do here. And I think that would kind of ruin the point. But I do recommend you picking up two serious ladies and, and reading this just for the experience, uh, just, just once, even if you just kind of go through it once without thinking about it too much which maybe is the best approach so um but yeah let me know what you think there's probably a lot i'm missing or other ways to read this um if you have ideas about this novel please let me know you can leave your uh comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com i'm going to give some more thought to this novel as a whole talk about part three where we reintroduce gurine and we see what her kind of her decision to move off to an island offshore where that takes her and to moving with moving in with Gamlin and Arnold living on an island somewhere you know where does that take her and in what ways is her path different or congruent with those that Mrs. Copperfield has in pursuing 
um, her bisexuality or her lesbianism through with her relationship with Pacifica. So yeah, that's going to be it for now. So thanks as always for listening. And I'll see you next time with my conclusion to my thoughts of on, on two serious ladies. Thanks for listening.